All right, I am in Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at two miracles, the cleansing of the leper, the healing of the paralytic. And therefore, we have to start all the way back in 1986. What happened in 1986? Well, if you were alive, and I was alive in 86, all over the radio was the song Somewhere Out There. Remember that song? And that, of course, is because an American Tale came out that year. American Tale is a, a little cartoon figure, Fievel the Mouse. Fievel is a Russian Jewish uh, mice. He's, he's in a community of mice. And he hears about the land of America. It's the 1880s. He hears about America. And he learns that's the place where there are no cats. And therefore, that mouse community, that community of mice, is going to board a ship, and they're going to attempt to make it all the way to New York City. As Fiebel and his family get on the ship, and they start heading overseas, there's a terrible thunderstorm, and Fiebel gets swept over into the water. His family believes that he's died, and they have a time of grieving, but he doesn't die. He finds a little bottle. And he stays on that bottle all the way till he makes it to New York City. So the seven-year-old, when he sets foot into New York City, doesn't know which way to turn or who to trust. He meets Warren Rat. Of course, Warren is a local con man that wants to take advantage of anybody that's new to the community. And in good old-fashioned 80 stereotypes, he meets the Italian, Tony Tapone. Uh, he meets Honest John, the Irish politician that drinks a lot and tries to get votes. And, and, and throughout the story, Fiebel is lost, and he's hurting, and he's isolated. And part of the storyline is he doesn't know who to trust, and he doesn't know where to turn. Now, this is a very common theme in literature, by the way. Alice in Wonderland, Finding Nemo, The Wizard of Oz, Pinocchio. There are all these kinds of stories, both for children and adults, that show people or characters that are lonely, isolated, hurting, they need help, and they're not quite sure where to turn or who to trust. And these types of stories resonate with us because we know what it's like. We know what it's like to be isolated, heard, and not know who you can turn to or who you can trust, and yet there's this feeling that we have that keeps us moving. Somewhere out there, someone's saying a prayer for me. So we keep searching and we keep searching. There's a little bit of Fible in each one of us. There's a little bit of Nemo in each one of us. There's this Dorothy figure in every one of us as we're going down the yellow brick road and we're meeting friends, but we're not sure who to trust or where to turn. And the reason this is, I think, a relevant opening for our passage here is because we have two stories, isolated, hurting, marginalized people that don't know who to trust or where to turn, but they find Jesus. And in Jesus, they find someone that they can go to. I want to talk today about trusting God, going to God when life hurts. If you're like me, usually this is the last thing you think about doing when life hurts. And I'm the pastor. So if this is like an afterthought for me, it's probably an afterthought for most of us because I do this for a living. What happens is we find ourselves in a crisis and we start to think of all the ways we're going to get out of the crisis and then we start making phone calls and send emails to try to control the crisis. And then we catch ourselves at about day two. Why didn't I bring this to the Lord to begin with? And then we fall on our knees and start crying out to God. My goal is to get you to do that before two days have expired, right? We want to go to the Lord right away when a crisis comes into our lives. And so we're going to talk about two stories here in Luke 5 of lost, isolated, hurting people that are not sure where to turn but they turn to Jesus and they find great comfort and help. 
All right, here's why we should go to Jesus right away with our problems. Let's go to Jesus for these five reasons. Number one, we go to Jesus because He offers us restoration. He is the one that can restore us. He offers the hope of restoration. Now let's take a step back for a minute and talk about miracles. In this passage, Jesus heals two people. He heals a leper and a paralytic. And that raises the question, why did Jesus perform miracles? Well, when you think about why Jesus performed miracles, and let's just talk about a theology of miracles for a couple minutes here, there are two main reasons people say, both of which are true, but it's more than this, that Jesus performed miracles. Evidence and empathy. You get that? Lock that in. Evidence and empathy. So some people rightly say Jesus performed miracles to prove that he was the Messiah. It's evidence that he's the Messiah. And this is all over Scripture. Passages where Jesus says, The works that my Father has given me, they bear witness of me. The Apostle John says that these works that he puts in the Bible in the book of John are so that we may believe in Christ. In the book of Acts, the miracles of the apostles authenticate them as messengers. And so one of the reasons Jesus performs miracles, and I'm talking all the miracles, is it's evidence that he is the Messiah. The Messiah is going to perform certain miracles. Jesus does that. That draws attention to Jesus. On the other hand, some people say, well, it's not so much evidence, it's more empathy. Jesus is moved with compassion. And this is true. When you find Jesus healing people, it uses the word compassion. It's kind of a strange word. It's a Greek word that means entrails. It means stomach, like the inside of someone. And that's because the idea in the Greek culture is there is so much compassion that you feel that you start to get almost a stomach ache. You start to feel sick to yourself because there's an empathy you have for someone. If you've ever had a loved one go through something really tough, maybe you lost somebody, the empathy, and you just start to feel sick to your stomach, Read the book of Lamentations. You can see Jeremiah getting sick to his stomach. So some say evidence. Some say empathy. Why did Jesus perform miracles? I would suggest that both of those are true, but they're both short-sighted for this reason. If Jesus really wanted to prove, only prove, that he was the Messiah, these miracles do a little bit of that, but they don't get you all the way. Let's be honest. There's better ways to do this. Healing a leper does draw attention but bench-pressing the temple in Jerusalem would really draw attention. What if Jesus, if he wanted to show himself to be the Messiah, flew up into the sky and rode it across the sky? If you want to prove that you're the Messiah, let's just be honest, these miracles are probably not the best way to do it. They do that, but that can't be the only reason Jesus is doing that. On the other hand, if all Jesus wanted to do is show sympathy to people, he definitely shows sympathy, but that's not the best way to do it either. I mean, he healed the leper, but why didn't he heal the whole leper colony? And how about the woman that touches the hem of his garment because he felt compassion? Why not take the garment, cut it into 50 pieces, and send it throughout the whole world, and everybody that touches it, you know, is healed? If Jesus really wanted to just show empathy, there are better ways to do it than these miracles. So it is true that it evidences Jesus the Messiah, and it shows that he has a lot of empathy, but that misses really the heart of what the miracles are about. The miracles all have a new creation quality to them, and that's the point of the miracles. There's a new creation quality. Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God, and these miracles, and here's where I'm going with this, they are a small taste of the kingdom to come. 
They're a window of the kingdom to come. They're a small sample of what God is going to someday do on the cosmic scale. It's not just that Jesus is proving that he's the Messiah or he's just showing empathy. It is Jesus' way of saying that someday I'm not just going to heal one leper, I'm going to heal the whole creation of sickness. Someday we're not just going to cast out this one demon or ten demons. All the demons are going to be expelled. Even the, non, even the non-human world, where Jesus calms the winds and the waves in the, in the original creation, you know, the, the, the nature was not taking people's lives. That's a result of the fall to some degree. And when Jesus calms the winds and the waves, it's a picture that he's Lord over the whole creation. He's not just going to heal people of sickness. He's going to heal the entire cosmos. By the time you get to the book of Revelation, he says, I make all things new. These two miracles are significant for that reason. They point us to the hope of restoration we have in Jesus. Not just now, but for all time. For you that ski, you go up north, maybe to Vermont, Killington or Mount Snow, and you know there's times you're driving up, well, I don't know which way you go, Route 91, I guess, right? That's where we would go from central Connecticut. And there's very little snow in Connecticut, maybe none at all. By the time you get to Massachusetts, you're in Northampton, maybe halfway up, you're starting to see these little white patches on the ground, right? And everybody in the car gets excited. Why is everybody in the car getting excited? Because that's a small sample of what the ski slope is going to look like. For you that like to visit the ocean, you drive down and can't really smell the ocean from here. But the closer you get, you start to smell that salt, especially in New England, Cape Cod. You start to smell the salt. And when you smell that salt, there's something inside of you that says, I can't wait to see that, that water. I can't wait to see the sand. That's a small sample of what's to come. That's the miracles of Jesus. They're a small sample of what's to come. We go to Jesus not just for healing in this life, not just for blessing here and now, though we do that. We go to Jesus because when he does something in our lives, when he answers that prayer, that's a small sample of what he's going to do someday on a cosmic scale. You know, if you're out of work and you're praying to get a job, when Jesus answers that prayer, that's not just Jesus providing for you in this life. You know what he's doing? He's giving you a small sample of what's to come because nobody's unemployed in heaven. (laughs) Everybody has work to do for the Master. When we pray that God would heal one of our friends, and we're praying for a lot of friends here at RBC, and God raises them up physically, we rejoice. But someday they're going to die anyway, and so are you and I. That's a small sample of what God will someday do on a cosmic scale. All the miracles that are in the Bible, and frankly, the miracles that we experience in this life, they should push our hearts towards the fullness of redemption and restoration. You that have little kids, you know this well, right? You're driving in the car, and boy, it's been three hours. You've got a fussy little one in the back seat. Uh, if you don't have a fussy little one in the back seat, that's because they're sleeping or they're watching TV or something like that. But as they, they're hungry, and so what do you do? You break off a couple pieces of crackers or give a couple goldfish. That's not the meal. That's a sample just to satisfy their appetite until they get home and they can eat something with substance. 
That's what the miracles are doing. We go to God. Go to God. Go to Him when life hurts because He offers us this hope of restoration. Here's number two. We see this in the two miracles. We go to Jesus because He receives us with open arms. Now, in the modern world, people tend to be, great people tend to be inaccessible. Uh, I, I love, uh, one of my favorite documentaries is, um, oh, Ken Burns Baseball. Did you guys see the, that's a, boy, if you like sports, you don't even have to like sports. Watch the baseball documentary. It's like 11 parts, you know. It'll take up your whole summer if you watch it. And one of the historians there that talks is Shelby Foote. Shelby Foote's a, a phenomenal historian on the Civil War and some other things. He's also a baseball historian. And Shelby Foote, he's an old guy now. I think he's passed away since the documentary. He tells this story where um, he, sa- he says, when, when I was a kid, the Yankees came through town, wherever he lived. This is in the South. And uh, they stayed at a certain hotel. So he and his friends said, let's go see the babe, you know. Uh, and they walk up to the front desk, and, and, and Shelby Foote and his friends say, which room is Babe Ruth in? And they said something like 3A, you know. And he goes and knocks on the door. Is the babe here? You know, and, 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 and someone opens the door and says, Babe's right here. Come on in and say hello. And, and he goes in. He has this long conversation with Babe Ruth and walks out without her. That almost never happens. Go try that with LeBron James, right? Go try that with, with even, a, even somebody local. Go try that with Aaron Judge. You're not even going to get your foot in the hotel. Great people tend to be inaccessible. Finding the president of your company. And getting them to answer a simple email can be a challenge at times. Charles Spurgeon wrote a, a great sermon in 1868. He preached an evening service in May, and he titled it The Approachableness of Jesus. I love this title. He said this. He said, great people tend to, tend to be, uh, are not readily to be come at. In other words, they're hard to find. They're elusive. He says, there are many back stairs to be climbed before you can reach the official who might have helped you. Many subalterns to be parlayed with and servants to be passed. In other words, there's so much bureaucracy you even have to cut through. And then he says, now, some good people are very affable. In other words, they, they're okay being approached by you. But then he quotes an old Russian proverb about a, a very nice man who has a lot of wealth and is willing to help anybody that comes to his door. But he's got all kinds of vicious dogs in his front yard, and so nobody will walk through to knock on the door. They kind of protect the man from really having to help people. Great, powerful people, those that can help us most, they're, they're inaccessible. They're like King Xerxes in the book of Esther. The king can help anyone, but you can't come without an invitation. Nobody is going to approach the king. And so Spurgeon says, not so with our master. He is greater than the greatest, higher than the highest. Jesus is to be approached now and then, not by some favored few, but by all whose hearts are kindled with the Holy Spirit in his presence. Jesus is approachable. We go to Jesus because he stands with open arms. He's approachable by the tax collectors. He's approachable by the prostitutes. He's even approachable by the Pharisee that came to him by night. Our Jesus is approachable. Therefore, we go to God when our life hurts. And by the way, Jesus is approachable even when you come with imperfect faith. Go to Him. It's kind of something we miss in this passage, but if you read it carefully, there's a sense in which the leper has faith, and there's a sense in which 
He doesn't have a lot of faith. Because what does he say? He says to Jesus, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He knows Jesus has the power to cleanse him, but he's not so certain Jesus cares enough to cleanse him. And I find that to be true of most of us. I rarely meet people, Christians, I rarely meet Christians that struggle with the sovereignty of God. I'll just be honest. Uh, Most of us believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe God can do anything. We believe Jesus can do anything. But we often wonder, will he do it for me? Is he listening to me? When Jesus preached on prayer, nobody was questioning if God could answer prayer. Everybody knows God can answer prayer. The question is, which of you that ask for bread will God give a stone? You see, it's not the ability of God. It's the goodness of God the disciples are struggling with. And so the man comes to Jesus, and what does he say? Lord, if you will, if you're willing to hear me and receive me, I know you can do this. He's like most of us. He just questions the love of God in his life. There's a sense in which he believes. There's also a sense in which he doesn't believe. And what I love about passages like this and multiple other passages in the Bible is that God here blesses imperfect faith. There's that pace where the man says, I believe, help thou my unbelief. What a contradiction. Well, if every one of us knows what that feels like, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You know, when Peter dropped the nets in the water and it was full of fish let us never forget that peter was only humoring jesus (laughs) he never thought nothing was going to come of that jesus healed his mother-in-law he owes him one not going to say no to the guy that healed your mother-in-law that's why he said to jesus we've been out all night toiling and our nets are a mess we just cleaned them but we'll free fine and he goes out and he drops the nets with imperfect faith and the nets come up full why go to him Jesus receives people with open arms. A bruised apple is still an apple. And your bruised faith is still recognized as faith by God. Number three, we go to Jesus. And when we do, we discover that he is superlatively sympathetic to the pain that we feel. And I don't know a better passage in Scripture that communicates this than the leper coming to Jesus. Jesus saw it all. Leprosy here simply means skin disease. It could be any number of skin diseases. Hansen's disease is the one that comes to mind for us. That's the leprosy we know. But it could be a a less mild form, psoriasis or something like that. And by the way, he was full of leprosy. That's what verse 12 tells us. Let's unpack verse 12 a little. Verse 12, while he was in one of the cities, then there came a man full of leprosy. What does it mean that he's full of leprosy? First of all, when God does heal him, nobody is outside the reach of God. I can tell you what most people in the leper colony were thinking. If you had a little patch of leprosy on the arm, probably you were a good candidate for God to heal you. But full of leprosy? Nah, that's not going to happen. He's way beyond the reach of God. He's full of leprosy. What an awful picture this would be, covered head to toe with leprosy. No, even other lepers don't want to go near him. He's physically, socially, psychologically, and theologically alienated. And I'm not even sure those facts alone communicate how desperate this man is. I want you to picture a man, maybe, I don't know, 25, 26 years old. He's been married for about five or six years. He's got three children. He's in the prime of life. He has good days and bad days, but he has very little to complain about because God's been very good to him. The biggest concern he has each day is just plowing the field and feeding the sheep. 
There he lays down a little bit for retirement here and there. Someday he's going to own his own farm. And he's out in the field plowing when all of a sudden his toe starts to hurt. What happened to my toe? Kind of forgets about it. It happens in the farm and the fields all the time, that kind of stuff. He gets in the house and pulls off his, his boot and his sock, and there's just a little lesion on the bottom of his foot. So he soaks it in water with a little bit of salt. He wakes up the next day. The lesion is still there. He goes out and plows in the field. Nothing to be concerned about. A couple days later, the rash starts to develop. And now it's spread to some of the other toes, almost around the whole foot. Now he's getting a little bit concerned. So what does he do? He gets a little oil and rubs it on it. He goes to the priest. The priest is not that concerned. The priest has seen this a million times, so to speak. So the priest simply says, stay off your foot, put oil on it, come back in a couple days, let me know what it looks like. He comes back a few days later. Now that rash is all the way up the leg. And by now, this young husband and father is thinking to himself, oh God, please not that. It isn't long before the priest declares him to be a leper. And with tears, the priest tells the man, you will not be returning home. You are now going to be confined to a colony. If it's Hansen's disease, his soul is going to wither the same way his body does. Anytime he sees someone coming from a distance, he's going to have to shout, unclean, unclean. His dream of going home is going to soon pass after the weeks, the months, and the years roll by. He is someone that is going to learn to hate himself the same way everybody hates him. He is the ultimate outcast. He is marginalized. The pain in his life is so unbearable, he will become numb. He is going to struggle with every ounce of being not to become angry at God and everybody around him. He will not be able to pet a dog because as soon as he puts his hand on the dog, the dog is going to have to be put down. He will not be able to have a sheep as a companion because as soon as he touches the sheep, the sheep has to be put down. He will not be able to feed himself. His family is now responsible for that. And every time his wife or his oldest son go out and leave food in the middle of the woods and walk away so he can come and pick it up, as soon as he picks it up, he's going to have to remind himself that his family is fending for themselves, taking care of him, when that's something he should be doing. Let's not forget the extreme amount of pain that is in this man's life. But he hears about some other lepers that have been cured. And he starts to wonder about this Jesus. And he's going to take a risk that very few are willing to take. He is going to approach Jesus, the man they call Jesus, and ask to be cleansed. What he is risking is not just Jesus looking at him, shouting, get away, but picking up a stick and beating him back with everything he has. You can't approach somebody like that. He comes to Jesus. I can imagine, how long has it been since he's had a conversation with someone? How long since someone's touched him? How long since he has had one of those eastern bear hugs from another man in the community? How long has he even touched a goat or a sheep? All of that is packed into verse 12. There came a man full of leprosy. He saw Jesus. He fell on his face. Lord, if you will make me clean. Now get this, verse 13. 
Jesus stretched out his hand and, you know what it says? Touched him. That is unbelievable because a word alone would have healed him. But Jesus touched him. Something in this passage tells me Jesus didn't think much about that. He didn't think, well, I'm going to touch him and I might become unclean. This man hasn't been touched for a long time. Jesus is so full of compassion. He didn't just say leprosy be gone. He reaches out and puts that human-on-human touch with this man and the leprosy disappears. This is compassion at a cost, my friends. Jesus touches this man, and in doing so, he himself will become ceremonially unclean. You can't touch a leper like that. But Jesus has that kind of compassion. He is moved to the point of sympathy. And I just want you to know, when Jesus looked at the leper, he saw it all. Saw it all. He saw the fear, the loneliness, the marginalization. He saw the fact that nobody has touched this leper in years. He saw the fact that this man has not had a hug in as long as he can remember. The anger that was in this guy's heart. The bitterness that was welling up towards God. Jesus saw it all. And he touched him. That's how God sees you. And that's how God sees me. The pain. The brokenness. The the feelings that you could not possibly communicate to the person sitting next to you. Jesus sees it all. Stephen Covey wrote that famous book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he tells a story in there. He says, I I remember having a paradigm shift on a subway one Sunday morning in New York. He was on a subway, and there was a man there with a few kids. And the kids were running around just causing a problem for everybody in the subway cart. You're probably thinking to yourself, I think I was on the train the same time Stephen Covey saw that, because I've had that happen to me several times. And these kids were running around and, and kind of yelling and screaming and grabbing newspapers from people and pulling them. And, and, and finally, Stephen Covey said, I just had enough. I turned to the man and I said, sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder, could you just control them a little bit? And the man lifted his gaze, Covey says, and he said very softly, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. But we just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. And I don't know what to think. I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Covey says, you, you can imagine what I felt at that moment. <laughs> My paradigm shifted. I saw things differently because I saw differently. I thought differently. I felt differently. I behaved differently. My irritation vanished. I didn't have to worry about controlling my attitude or my behavior. My heart was filled with this man's pain. Feelings of sympathy and compassion flowed freely. Your wife just died. I'm so sorry. Can can you tell me about it? What can I do to help? Everything changed in an instant. That's Jesus. That's Jesus to us. He sees our pain. He sees our suffering. He sees the isolation. He sees those moments when you don't quite know how to express yourself. When everybody around you is passing the judgments, and and understandably so sometimes, because, you know, we do some things that are unhelpful, don't we? But Jesus sees it, and he sees our hearts, and he has compassion for us. Number four is this. Move on to the next story with this. We've got to take our friends to Jesus. It's not just that we go to Jesus. But here in the passage, Jesus is able to work mightily in their lives. Let's talk for a minute about this next story where Jesus, we see four friends take 
their friend to Jesus. It starts in verse 18. Behold, some of them were bringing a man on a bed who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him and lay him before Jesus. There are two other stories in the gospel. Mark tells it and Luke tells it. This man is sick with, with palsy. We don't know. Was he quadriplegic? Could he not move at all? Could he just blink his eyes? Were his vocal cords? Some people think his vocal cords were paralyzed too because the man doesn't say anything here uh, in the passage. We're not quite sure the extent, but we know that he couldn't move and couldn't get off the pallet. And so this is kind of like a bed, a very small little bed, and there's four corners, and the men are kind of carrying him here, four friends. As we understand it, they're probably at Peter's house. He lives somewhere in the area. Word is getting around. The house is absolutely packed. And it's one of those where you can see them bringing the man up to the front door, and the house is so packed, everybody's going, you don't want, nah, you, you can't make it in here. So what do they do? Well, in the ancient world, most of these houses had two stories. At the first floor, you kind of had a kitchen and maybe sometimes a place to sleep. The second floor is commonly called the upper room. You know that from where the disciples had the Last Supper. And then on top of the upper room was this flat roof. It was, all, it was pretty hard. It could be clay. It could be slate or something like that. And it was open area, so you could take the stairs up the back and kind of lounge on a hot day up there go out on a cool night. And, and so what they do is they take the man up that stairway all the way to that second floor, and they start, at the expense of really offending the homeowner, they start pulling back some of that tile. And they lower this man right down before Jesus. And Jesus sees him, and what does he say? Son, one passage says son, the other one says man. It was spoken in Aramaic here, so you got two different words. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, here's what I want us to see about this passage. Notice what Jesus says. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Who is the they? That's plural. Jesus saw the faith of four people, maybe the fifth. The point to appreciate here is God is honoring the persistent faith of these four friends. When Jesus saw their faith, Now, I'm not suggesting that this man was forgiven apart from his own faith. And there's a little bit of mystery here that I'm frankly not sure how to completely unpack. So I'm just going to be very reserved in my comment here and say, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. There is some connection between the persistent prayers and faith of these four people and the man that is about to be healed. God honors the prayers that we have for our friends and family. It is of utmost importance, not just that we go to God when we're in trouble, but we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ and even the lost world when it finds itself in trouble. Exodus 17 is one of my favorite stories on prayer. Israel has come up against their first enemy, the Amalekites. They're attacked by the Amalekites. Joshua leads the troops into battle. And Moses is up on the hill with his hands up, praying for the people of Israel down in the valley. And every time his arms are up, Israel is winning. But the arms get heavy. Boy, it's hard to keep your arms up, isn't it? And they start to fall. And as the arms fall, Israel starts to lose. So Aaron comes on one side, her comes on the other, and they lift the arms of Moses high. That's a picture of holding somebody up in prayer. That is what God wants us to do to each other. 
We hold each other's arms up in prayer like that. God honors the persistent faith and efforts of Aaron and her, of the four men here, and he honors your persistent faith and efforts for your prayers for your brothers and sisters and your friends and family. God wants to use our prayers to that end. Last point is this. Why do we go to God? We go to Jesus because he doesn't just give us what we want, although he often does, (laughs) but he gives us what we truly need. Verse 24, But you know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Immediately there arose before them and panicked, uh, uh, picked up what had been lying on the bed and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things. So at first Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now stop right here. I have to believe, and I, 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 I'm going out on a limb, but I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch. This guy was probably pretty disappointed when Jesus said that. Here you come to Jesus to heal you, and he whispers some, be ye warmed and filled, so it seems over you. You know, I've been laying on this pallet for about 20 years, and Jesus looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. And I believe at that moment, probably everybody was disappointed that knew this man. The four friends, the man himself. So Jesus says, just just so you know, I have power to forgive sins. And I'm not just putting an empty blessing over him. Arise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man does. Now there's a lot of lessons in here we could unpack. But I just want to give you one. Jesus here is not just giving the man what he wants, though he actually does that. He gives the man what he truly needs, forgiveness. And when we come to God, God is so gracious that he doesn't just answer every prayer you give him, because that's not always what you need. But he always answers it according to his perfect will. I can't tell you how many things I've asked for in my life that I am thankful God didn't give me. And there is another list where I got a whole list of things that God did. The Lord sees our hearts. He sees our lives. He also sees an eternity that you and I don't see. And Jesus here gives the man not just what he wants or his felt need, but he gives him what he, what he truly, truly needs. The forgiveness. This man is broken. He's got palsy. He can't walk. He's unable and Jesus says, despite, despite that, despite what every single person in the world would say is your greatest need, I see one that they don't see. And you don't even see yourself at this moment. Son, your sins are forgiven. Can I just leave you with a question? Of all the prayers we offer to God, have you seen this as your greatest need, forgiveness? Have you experienced this? Have you asked God to forgive you for your sins, truly? Lord, I know I'm broken. I know I have a lot of problems in my life. There's nothing I want more right now than to feel the security or to feel the the love of a family or maybe to feel my backache go away, to be strong again. But I acknowledge I have an even greater need in my life than that, the need to be forgiven by Christ. Boy, if you'll come to God with that kind of open heart, ask him to forgive you. He looks at you just like he he says, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. 
Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for caring about us. Lord, we love you. We need you. We're going to go to you today. We're going to go to you. Help it not to be an afterthought for us. We don't want to go on day seven. We want to go first minute that that pain strikes us. First minute we feel alienated or hurting. Teach us to go to you when life hurts because you are truly our master and our Lord. You care about us more than we care about ourselves. Be our vision today in Jesus' name. Amen.